Greetings. In a few moments, I have a message for you of great encouragement. It's a sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached at Landmark Baptist Temple in Cincinnati, Ohio, as I recall. I don't have a year, but it was probably in the late 70s. It was also broadcasted through radio. And it's so touching. So first off, the opening hymn is absolutely amazing. Uh, Christ over every crisis, he has overcome the world. Makes you think of 1 John 4, 4, is it? He who is in you is greater than the one that's in the world. And you can see the choir is singing so loudly and you can hear the congregation and there's this sense of anticipation, particularly as the doctor is being introduced. The doctor will also share just some personal sentiments that he has regarding his ministry at Westminster Chapel and uh, American um, um, uh, soldiers and airmen and, and Navy um, the, during their time uh, during World War II. Um, so it's very touching. And the message is from Romans chapter 1, verses 11 to 17, that on what is a Christian? And I think that is a very good message for us today. And I call it the Lost Sermon because it was recorded on an album, but it was never made its way onto the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust. And so I, I, I saw the album on eBay. I purchased it. I've seen it a few more times. So the point is, um, it, it, it's always been out there. Um, uh, people have been blessed by it, but not by many. And uh, I was able to... Um, record it and then send it to the trust site and they were able to put it on. So that's why I call it the, the Lloyd-Jones lost sermon that's been been rediscovered. And I just think at these times, particularly um, just looking at the events over the last few months and the, the, the timing of this is really good. And if there's a message, because it's not really about uh, growing a, a YouTube channel, but if I could be of some encouragement to the brothers and sisters throughout this entire world uh, with two or three messages pointing in the right direction, as I often say, if you're Baptist, well, I want to point you back to your, your Spurgeon and your John Bunyan. If you're Methodist, I want to point you back to your Wesley and, and, uh, and Whitfield. If you're Presbyterian, well, then it's John Calvin. And if you're Lutheran, well, then it's Luther himself. Because these men are faithful shepherds, right? They're faithful shepherds. And and I have their books. I've read them and I see how they preach the gospel. And uh, they are in sync with one another. Um, and, and then you see other faithful men throughout history, such as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that there's just nothing that he preaches that you could really argue against, that you should have any issues with. Just a, a true... Uh, a true shepherd, a true pastor, uh, a true proclaimer of God's of God's wonderful gospel. Um, so, if there was like one video that I could say, "Oh, I'd like this one to go viral. I'd like this one to be seen by hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people," well, th- well, this would be the video. Not to grow the channel. I don't care if the channel goes to zero. Um, but if uh, but to encourage souls. Because uh, these are uh, very confusing times. And the doctor, uh, I think you'll find encouragement when the doctor lays out the challenges facing the church back in the 1970s. That uh, these problems, while they're new to us, they're not certainly not new to God and they're not new to his church. 
So that should just cause us to draw ever so closer to God and be thankful to be a Christian. How wonderful it is indeed to be a Christian, to be able to walk in spirit and truth. So I think you'll be immensely blessed by the opening hymn, by the introduction, by the sermon. It's from soup to nuts. It's just an absolute delight for the soul. Now, let me mention this to you as well. We should all be able to agree on this. Uh, there is um, 66 books in the Bible. You should be able to agree. There's 40 different authors. There's about 700,000 words. And the Bible is principally a rescue story. That's the narrative. And it's about a person. His name is Jesus Christ. So if you go to Genesis 3.15, after the fall, you'll see quickly God is saying, yeah, I'm going to have to do something about this. To make this right, I'm going to have to do something about it. And then you can think about the Baptist saying, Behold, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. Um, as his introduction, you can see in Romans 3.21, is it? Uh, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, in meaning that the way in which God is going to make everything right. And you can go all the way to what, Revelation 21, where he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. So the Bible is principally about a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And it's in what is the narrative? What is the plumb line of the story? It's a rescue story. And I think that's really important because the doctor is going to make the argument that every, how do we know that we're Christian? Because we have the prescription. We have the cure. We have something to give to all people to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise, the doctor is going to argue. And when you think about Romans, because I was, you know, I think there was a comment, I don't want to misstate it, but it was asking me, well, you know, where do you see the gospel in sin? Well, I see the gospel in sin all the time because you're dealing with sinners. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God, meaning that Christ never actually committed a sin, but he took our responsibility for our sins. And uh, so there's this uh, divine impart uh, divine uh, uh, transaction where um, where we receive a gift of His righteousness, while He takes accountability for our sins. So as you're thinking about Romans, it's definitely all about the gospel message. But I want to remind you about how to approach this book. That I would argue that principally from chapters one to four is about we are justified. Um, by faith and faith alone. So it's on the doctrine of justification, chapters 1 to 4. And what you'll see is that glory has been lost. You know, in Romans it says, right, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Not that all fallen short of God's law, which is also true, but all have fallen short of God's glory, meaning that we're no longer reflecting God's glory in our lives. But that glory is being regained through Christ. And then chapters 5 through 8 is principally about the assurance of salvation. Now, there are other topics. There's other doctrines, absolutely. But 1 to 4 is principally justification by faith. 5 to 8 is assurance of salvation. When you look at um, uh, chapters uh, 6 and 7, uh, look, at, look, at, um, look at 5 and 8 as bookends and 6 and 7, where Paul is saying, now listen, I want to make sure you don't go to extremes. I don't want you to go to the extreme of antinomianism in chapter 6. 
And I don't want you to go to the extreme of legalism in chapter 7. And it gives us insight on what Paul later says, what, in Galatians, that I have died to the law. In other words, the, the law is of no use to me at all because I live unto God, and that is how I'm sanctified, because I've been born again. Think about what William Williams, a Pantakelly, the famous Welsh Calvinistic Methodist preacher, who said that for him, he made this startling point that he said, you know, being orthodox, being sound in doctrine, but being unsaved is just as bad as being a heretic or being uh, running afoul in doctrine. So, so his point being is that without the power of God, it is useless. So you can completely be orthodox. You can have something of the truth. I mean, the demons themselves speak truth at times. But if you don't have the power of God, well, then what, what good is it then? If the life of God is not in your soul, then what value is there? And I think that is a startling point that Williams is saying, hey, if I'm if I'm in error or if I'm in truth, the bottom line is my soul, I'm still in dead in my sins. What I need is the power of God. I need the spirit that quickens the word of God. Okay, because my heart has actually been born again. I have a new set of affections that's divine, something a work that only God can do. So I really want to express this about how to approach this. Again, verses uh, chapters 5 to 8, assurance of salvation, 9 to 11, reveals God's sovereignty and his purposes. When you look at chapters 12 to chapter to 15, uh, verse 13, these chapters are immensely practical on how Christians are to think and understand and behave and act. And then finally, from chapters 15, verse 14 to 16, emphasizes some personal matters on Apostle Paul's uh, part, particularly wanting to um, acknowledge his foot soldiers in the gospel message. Well, I hope that was just helpful. Just again, a few thoughts about the Bible and um, and about Romans, about how to approach this wonderful book and, and to study it. And I want to share a word of encouragement from John's uh, first epistle, chapter 4, verse 4, that listen to me, brothers and sisters in the faith. He who is in us is far greater than the one that is in this world, that God indeed will be victorious. We can count on that. Now be blessed by this hymn and by this wonderful sermon and share with others. Well, grace upon grace be with you.
It's been a great and a wonderful day at our landmark temple. We have had in this pulpit Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones from London, England, pastor for many years of Westminster Chapel, great preacher, theologian, teacher, scholar. We've looked forward to the time when he could be our guest here at our landmark temple. And this has been the great day. We've had marvelous preaching from this pulpit in years gone by, but never in the history of this church has our Lord been exalted any greater than in the message this morning. And we're so delighted that Dr. Lloyd-Jones could be with us on our broadcast today. And we thank God for the privilege of sharing with our radio audience the ministry of this great man of God. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, come to the microphone and the service is yours. It's so wonderful you could be with us today. Well, I'd like to thank you for that uh, very kind and warm welcome and to express again my sense of real privilege at being here. I find it a most encouraging day. I would like to say this, and especially perhaps for those who are not present and who are listening, that while I was in Westminster Chapel for 30 years, it was my privilege during that long period uh, to receive many visitors from your country who would come to see me at the close of a service. I particularly treasure those men who were in the forces, your forces, during the war, the last war, both in the Army and the Navy. I look back with very great joy at the many who then came in to see me, many testified to having received blessing. And on my various visits to this country, there has been nothing that has so gladdened my heart as to see such men coming on to greet me again. Some of them now bringing with them their wives and their children, whom they hadn't got when they were in the war. And I've seen their eyes fill with tears as they were telling their wives that this was the men to whom they used to listen during those dark days of the war. So it's a very great joy indeed to be with you once more. But I'm particularly glad to be here in this church. And for this reason, we're all of us who are truly Christian at this time engaged in a very great and a very grievous battle. We're in it in Great Britain as you are in this country. We are fighting for the faith, fighting for the life of the true church. And sometimes, uh, some of us, uh, particularly in Britain, where perhaps we haven't got as many evangelical people as you are privileged to have in this country, we tend to feel a little bit discouraged. We tend to feel that we're a small company of people. So I cannot tell you what a joy it is to be here today and to see this great church and this great concourse of people. It's gladdened my heart and it's truly encouraged me. So I thank God for this landmark Baptist temple and its famous and zealous and valiant fighter for the faith, the minister, Dr. John Rawlings. Well now, I'm sure that you'll Allow me just to leave what I feel in my heart this evening 
on just that note, in order that I may continue really what I've just been saying by calling your attention to some words that were written by the great Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Romans and in the first chapter. Let me read a few verses beginning at verse 11. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end, that ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was led hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. But I want in particular to call your attention now to that 14th verse. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. I call attention to that because it is one of the many definitions that we find scattered about in the various writings of this great apostle of what it means to be a Christian. That's why I'm calling attention to it. And I do so for the reason that I've just been giving. We are living in these days of terrible confusion. I suppose there's nothing that is more characteristic of our world tonight than just this very element of confusion. Doesn't matter what realm you look at, you see nothing but confusion. Even in the realm of politics there is confusion. The old labels, the old names seem to count for very little. Everything has become mixed up. And it's true in the realm of thinking what people call philosophy. There was a time, I'm old enough to remember it, when people used to say that the material came up to one level and the spiritual started at another. But now they're talking about the spirit even in substances like iron. Everything is said to be spirit. There is this confusion. But when we come to the realm of morals and of behavior and of conduct, well, this confusion of which I'm speaking is surely tragically evident and obvious. Today the problem is not what is moral or immoral. So there are people who don't even recognize morality at all. The whole notion of morality is being questioned and queried. And things that 40 years ago every decent person would agree about as being wrong and reprehensible has almost become the thing to do by today. This terrible confusion. But the most serious confusion of all is the confusion in the so-called Christian church. And it is a confusion 
Not about secondary or third-rate or unimportant matters. The confusion here is with regard to the very meaning of the term Christian. Now, it's not surprising that masses of people are outside the church. When they hear these contradictory voices coming to them over the radio and the television and what they read in the newspapers, all of them claiming to be Christian, and yet diametrically contradicting one another. It's not surprising that the church is as she is. It's not surprising that the world is as it is this evening. And my dear friends, I therefore make no apology at all for calling your attention to this primary fundamental question. What is a Christian? We can't make any assumptions today. Now there's all this talk about uniting the churches, ecumenical movement, world church, and so on. But surely before we begin to discuss matters like that, we should be clear about this question. What is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I needn't weary you, and I haven't got the time, in any case, uh, to give you the various foolish and wrong and false notions that are current with respect to this. There are people calling themselves Christian belong to the so-called death of God movement. Don't even believe in God. Have no basis whatsoever. Others think that it's just to be good and to be kind and to be friendly. Others think a Christian is just a man who is against war and against bombs, some kind of pacifist or something of that description. These are the ideas that people have as to what it is that makes a man a Christian. I say, therefore, that it is essential that we should be certain in our minds as to what really makes a man a Christian. Now then, here we have the great authority on the subject, the Apostle Paul, the greatest preacher, greatest evangelist, greatest teacher that the world, has ever, the church has ever known. And this is what he says. But now I can imagine someone saying, now wait a minute, I can see what you're going to do. The Apostle Paul in that verse of yours, that 14th verse of the first chapter of Romans, is talking about himself. And if you were going to hold up the standard of the Apostle Paul to us as this critic, well, of course, you'll be able to prove very easily and very simply that there are very few Christians in the, this congregation or listening on the radio or anywhere in the world tonight. But you won't be fair. The Apostle was such a unique man, such an astonishing man, and you mustn't compare us with him. Now, wait a minute. Lest you think that you can get out of this by arguing like that, let me show you that the apostle himself makes it impossible for you to do so. He says, I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that he may be established. Then, fearing lest somebody might say in, in Rome, who is this man who puts himself up on a pedestal and says he's got something to give to others? He hastens to add, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and of me. Now, no, this is not only true of the apostle, it's true of all. Great man though he was, the apostle Paul as a Christian is in exactly the same position as every other Christian. As he says himself, he is simply a sinner saved by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. He had nothing to boast of. As a Christian, 
is in the same position as every other Christian. Very well. What is a Christian? Here's his answer. I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. What does he mean by this? Let's examine ourselves in the light of this. My dear friend, this is a subject about which no man can afford to be uncertain for a moment. The most important question in the world at this moment, more important than the war in Vietnam even, or anything else, is just this. Am I a Christian? Are you a Christian? Do you know it for certain? Why is this the most important question? Well, for the reason that it not only determines your life in this world, it will determine your eternal, your everlasting destiny. It's the question of questions. Very well. Here's his answer. He says, I am a debtor. What does this mean? Well, you see, it means this, doesn't it, in the first instance. He's a man who's got something to give. He owes people something. So he's got something to give. And the apostle has just been saying that as I've read to you, I long to be with you, he says, to see you, that I may impart unto you, pass on to you, some spiritual gift. So here is the first thing which is true about the Christian. He's a man who's got something in his possession that he can give to another. Why do I emphasize this? Well, for this reason. There are so many people today who seem to think that the Christian is a man who's looking for something. If you got your idea of the Christian from the religious books and journals of many of them today, you'd think that a Christian is a man who set out in some great quest and search for truth. He's a man who's looking for what they call reality and for truth. He's an intelligent man who's reading books and philosophy. He's anxious to discover and to find. And there is this idea today that the Christian is that sort of man. That whereas the majority of people are just content to go on eating and drinking and indulging in sex and never think at all about their souls and about eternity, the Christian is a thoughtful and an intelligent man and who's trying to discover the meaning of life. He's looking for some way of escape, some means of salvation, a seeker and a searcher after the truth. But you see, this definition of the apostle condemns that immediately. The apostle isn't saying here that he longs to be in Rome in order that he may join the research team in the great quest for truth and for reality. No, no, says Paul. I'm longing to be with you, not that we may look for truth together, but to tell you about the truth I've already found. I've got it. I'm not a seeker. I am a possessor. I have something in my possession. Or in the same way. There are many who seem to think that the Christian is a man who is hoping someday for salvation. Oh, they say, I wouldn't like to say that I am saved. They regard that as an impertinence almost. They say, you know, you've no right to say, who are you to say that you are saved? No, no, they say the Christian is a humble man, and what he says is that he's hoping that sometime or another before he arrives in eternity, he will know that he's a Christian and that he will have found salvation. He's hoping for it. But again, you see, the apostle makes that definition quite impossible. He doesn't say that he's 
hoping for salvation, that he wants to go to Rome to sit on a bench with them, to hope that something will happen in some mystical manner? No, no. He's not a man who's hoping for it. He's a man who's already got it. He says he's not ashamed of it. He knows exactly what he has. I know whom I have believed. Very well then. The Christian is not a man who's seeking for it. He's not a man for hope who's hoping for it. He's a man who's actually got it. Now then, my friends, let's be clear about this. Owing to this terrible confusion at the present time, let me suggest to you a very simple test which every one of you can apply to himself or herself tonight to know for certain whether you're a Christian or not. Here it is. Let's imagine that after you've gone home from this service and those of you who are at home, uh, you're sitting in your house and suddenly someone comes knocking loudly at your door. You go to the door and there you find a messenger and you say, what's the matter? Well, he tells you that he's been sent there by a man whom you've known for years. He's a man whom you've perhaps been brought up with and you've known him all your life. He's not a Christian. You were a Christian, but he's not. You've often met him and when you've met him, you've talked to him about these things. You've seen the kind of life he's been living wasting his money on drink and things of that description, neglecting his soul and his eternal destiny. And yet there was always something about him that rather attracted you. He was a nice fellow, and you felt sorry for him, and you kept contact with him. Well, here's the message. While we were in this service, this poor fellow's been taken desperately ill. He's had a sudden heart attack. They've sent for the doctor, the doctor's done his best, but suggests that they'd better call in a higher authority. And they've done so, and he says, take him to hospital at once. And there they're giving him this expert treatment, this emergency treatment. The man's desperately ill, and the doctors are quite agreed that there's very little chance of his living to reach midnight tonight. And the man suddenly awakens to this realization. He can see the anxiety on the face of his wife and his children. He can see the expression on the face of the doctors. He suddenly realizes that he is dying. And like the prodigal of old having come to himself, he realizes he's in a desperate position. He can't lean on his past life. He knows now that it's all wrong. He comes to see the folly of it all. And yet he doesn't know anything. He can't face the future. He looks to the future, he sees nothing but blackness and darkness and despair. He's got no hope. He doesn't know what to do nor where to turn. And suddenly he thinks of you. And he thinks of you, of course, because he's known you as a Christian and a member of the church. So he, in his desperation he sends for you. And this is the message. Well, what do you do? Well, you've no choice. You've got to go. And you arrive at the house, and you walk up the stairs, or you enter the bedroom, or there's a hospital, and here you are, and you're facing this poor fellow who's probably going to be dead before midnight tonight, and who's looking into your face and into your eyes, as only a dying man can do, a man who's dying and who doesn't know how to die, and who's afraid to die. Would you like to know whether you're a Christian or not? Here's the test. Have you got something that you can pass on to that man that will make all the difference in the world to him? 
Now, will it help him if you turn to him and say something like this? Ah, oh, well, my friend, at last you've awakened to the importance of the things about which I often spoke to you. At last you can see the foolish way in which you lived and have squandered your life and your capacities. At last you see the futility of it all. If only you'd lived the good life that I've lived. If only you hadn't done the things you've done, you wouldn't be feeling as you are now. Does that help the men? Of course it doesn't. That's to cast the man into hell before he's dead even. In other words, the Christian is not merely a good man. He's not merely a moral man. The Christian is a good man. But you see, he's not only that for this reason. That however moral you and I may be, you can't give your morality to another. You can't pass on, you can't use the apostle's word, you can't impart your morality to another. And yet, says Paul, by definition, the Christian is a man who's got something that he can give, he's a debtor. So he's not merely a moral man. Or I wonder whether it'll help the poor fellow if you turn to him and say something like this. Well, my dear friend, you're obviously dying and you know it. And you're now looking for salvation, for some hope. You know, I'm also looking. I've been seeking this for years. I've been reading books. I've been listening to the lectures of the great philosophers on the television. I'm a seeker and searcher after truth. I'm also looking after truth with you. Is that going to help the men who'll be dead before midnight tonight? No, no. It's to cast him into utter hopelessness and despair. I say again, the Christian is not merely a good man. He's not merely a man who's looking for truth and for salvation and for help. He's a man who says, I know I have it. I can give it to you. He's a debtor. He has something in his possession that he can give to another. But wait a minute. The apostle adds to that definition. He amplifies it. You notice how he puts it. He says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Now, this is a very important addition. What's it mean? Well, let me put it like this to you. I've met a few men who could say with honesty that they are debtors to the Greeks. What does that mean? Well, you know what sort of people the Greeks were. They were the great intellectualists of these early centuries. They were famous for their philosophy. The great philosophers were Greeks. And it was the Mecca, the place to which all people interested in philosophy went. And they were always arguing about truth and this theory and that theory, exactly as the same sort of people are doing today. Now I say that I've met a few men who could say quite honestly that they're debtors to Greeks. If you gave them a congregation of philosophers, they'd be perfectly happy. They could put up this theory and then the other and compare them and contrast them and criticize them, and they could go on talking for hours. Debtors to the Greeks. But if you suddenly confronted them with a congregation of people who had never opened a textbook on philosophy and who knew nothing at all about it, perhaps not even the meaning of the word, they'd have nothing to say. And not only would they have nothing to say, they'd feel that you were insulting them by asking them to address such an ignorant crowd of men and women. They're debtors to the Greeks. They've got nothing to give to the barbarians. What of them? They're not Christians, says Paul. For the Christian is a debtor not only to the Greek, but also to the barbarian. Now this is an important point, isn't it? These men, you see, who give this 
great show of learning and the impression that they understand the mysteries. They can only talk to one another and they have nothing to give to the average men and women. That's not Christianity. But for me to be perfectly fair, I have known a few men who could say that they were debtors to the barbarians. I mean by that, that if you want a man who could play on the surface emotions of an ignorant crowd of people, well, they were masters at it. Uh, Hitler could do that, you know, and there are many people who are masters at handling a mob psychology, and they can play on people's emotions and make them do almost anything they like. Debtors to the barbarians. But if there happened to be a Greek kind of person there who came at the end and asked certain questions, they'd have no answer to give him. Debtors to the Greeks, nothing to give to the barbarians. What of them? Well, again, the apostles suggest that these are not Christians either. Or to be charitable, if they are Christians, they're very poor Christians. For the Christian, my friends, is not merely a man who's had an experience. He can tell you why he's had it. He can give you an explanation of it. You remember how Peter supports what this apostle says? Be ready, he says, to the ordinary Christian. Be ready at all times to give a reason for the hope that is in you. This is to me a most important matter. We are fighting not only false Christian teaching. We are fighting the cults at the present time. And the cults, you know, can give people experiences. That's why they succeed. Nobody belonged to a cult if he didn't help them in some shape or form. The cults can give people experiences. They say their lives have changed. They've had some wonderful thrill, some wonderful mystical experience. How do we tell the difference between that and Christianity? This is the answer. That the Christian can give a reason for the hope that is in him. He's not only a debtor to the barbarian, he is also a debtor to the Greek. He's not merely a man who's had his life changed. He is a man who knows the truth as it is in Christ Jesus, the truth that this great apostle expounds in this great epistle to the Romans. Very well. This is what the apostle is saying. He says, I'm longing to be with you in Rome, and I'm ready to preach. I don't care who listens, he says. I'm ready to preach to the emperor. I've got a sermon for him, but I'm equally ready to speak, preach, preach to the slaves, to the servants, to the soldiers. Give me a man, says Paul. Give me a soul. I've got something to give him. I don't care whether he's a Greek or a barbarian. I don't care whether he's wise or unwise. I don't care whether he's wealthy, whether he's poor. I don't care what his psychology is. I don't care what his color is. I don't care what his nationality is. Give me a man, and I've got something to give him. Yes, he's got something to give, and he can give this something to anybody, to everybody. But lastly, he's a man who feels that he's bound to give it. He's got to give it. You see, Paul chose this word debtor quite deliberately. In order to bring out this idea of compulsion, he was very fond of saying this. And when we use this word debtor, we think of a man in a court and certain pressures being put to bear upon him in order to get from him this thing. Debtor. Now, Paul puts this in different ways. In writing in the first epistle to the Corinthians, he says, 
You ask me why I preach and why I travel as I do and why I'm so indefatigable. The answer, he says, is this. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. I can't help myself. I must do it. Indeed, he goes further in the second epistle to the Corinthians, and he puts it in this amazing phrase. The love of Christ constraineth me. What a term. He says, I'm like a man in a vice, and it's being tightened up. It's becoming tighter and tighter. The pressure of the love of Christ is driving it through me and out of me. I can't help myself. The love of Christ constraineth me. Now that's the idea that's in this word debtor. And this man feels, the Christian feels, that he's got to give this thing. Why does he feel this? Well, I could keep you at great length in answering the question. I mustn't do so. Let me summarize it for you. The Christian feels this, of course, because of what this gospel has done for him. It's made him a happy man, you see. And when a man is made a happy man and given some of the joy of the Lord, he feels that he wants everybody to rejoice with him. You know the type of man who's always sitting in the corner on his own? What's the matter with him? Well, he's a miserable man. He's got a problem. He's got a difficulty. And he spends his time talking to himself and arguing with himself. But the moment a man becomes full of joy, well, it's a kind of radiator. It's this word power. It's a, like a radiator. The man who's happy wants everybody to be happy with him. He's unhappy in a sense if, he, if everybody else isn't happy. There is something radiating, dynamic, about this great joy which the gospel gives. And the apostle had received this. And every true Christian has received the same thing. And he wants everybody to share it with him. Now I want to put this to you in the form of an illustration. There's nothing original about it. Take this 16th verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. Now I'm going to tell you about that word power. In the early part of this very century in which we are living, a man burrowing in some ancient scrap heaps in Egypt found a little bit of parchment, what they call a papyrus, a document. And he made this interesting discovery. I'm only reporting it to you. It isn't my discovery. He discovered this, that the word which is translated power here in our King James Version, that same word was used in the first century for our word prescription. What a doctor gives you, prescription. So you can translate Romans 1.16 if you like, like this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the prescription of God unto salvation and the health and healing to every one that believeth. So you see what the apostle is saying, I can put like this to you. What's a Christian? Why does he feel he's got to give this thing which he has to another? Look at it like this. Imagine a man who had been suffering for years from some very painful and crippling disease. Some form of arthritis, if you like. There he was, poor fellow. 
His joints were not only painful, but he could scarcely move them at all. Of course, he'd gone to his doctor. The doctor had done his best, but the man was no better. He'd gone to a higher doctor, still no better. He'd gone to the highest doctor in the country, still no better. And here he was, beginning to settle down to a final hopelessness of pain and crippledom. When suddenly, he was told of some wonderful physician in some other continent. And he was so impressed by what he was told that he determined to go and see this great physician. And he went. And at last he finds himself in the room with this great man. And this physician looked at him and said, yes, I know exactly what's the matter with you. And I can cure you. And he sat down at his desk. And he put on his glasses and he pulled out his pen and he wrote a prescription. And he said to this man, well now, you go and get that dispensed, and you take that medicine. And I can promise you, you'll begin to lose your pain, and then your joints will begin, begin to get loose and supple again, and in a short while you'll feel as if you'd never been ill in your life. And the man did this. He took the prescription, took it to the chemist, the druggist, got his medicine, took it regularly, religiously, and as the great physician had prophesied, he lost his pain, he ceased to be a cripple, and he was perfectly well. Now this is his experience. He walks up the street, up and down the streets of life, and one afternoon he's walking down the street, and he suddenly sees a man on the other side of the street. He doesn't know the man, but he recognizes the disease. He can tell by the way that poor fellow's holding himself and the way he's shuffling along that he is suffering from his old disease, his old complaint. And he says to himself, it's obvious that that man has never heard of the prescription that I've got in my pocket. What does he do about it? There's no need to argue. There's no need to have any counseling. There's no need to have any discussion. He says there's only one thing to do. I must cross the road. I must speak to that man. And he does so. He goes to him and says, excuse me, sir. You don't know me and I don't know you, but I do know what's the matter with you. Tell me, have you ever heard of this? The prescription. He's got a certain cure in his pocket. And that poor man needs it. He's suffering. He doesn't know about the cure. What's the, what, what does he feel? He says, I'd be a cad if I didn't tell him. It doesn't matter that I've not been introduced to him. It doesn't matter that I don't know him. I know his disease. I can sympathize. And I know of an absolutely certain cure. So he gives it. And that's the Christian. That's this man who's a debtor. He's got this something to give. He can give it to anybody. He feels he must give it. Why? Well, because it's the only cure. Because it is a certain cure. It's because of what Jesus Christ has done to him and for him. What has he done? He's given him forgiveness of sins. Pardon. Blotted them out as a thick cloud. He's reconciled him to God. He's made him a son of God. He's given him this airship of eternity. He's given him new life and vigor and power. Conquest over all temptations which invariably got him down. He's made a new man of him. A healthy man. A whole man. A man who has salvation. And he opens out before him the glory of everlasting and eternal bliss. That's why he feels he's got to give it. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God. We thank thee for so great a salvation. 
We feel that all our expressions are inadequate. We feel like saying with Charles Wesley of old, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the triumphs of my God and King, the wonders and the glories of His grace. Oh, God, tune our hearts to sing, thy praise aright. Open all our eyes more and more by thy blessed Spirit, that we may see this salvation as it is in all its wonder and greatness and glory, and be lost in a sense of wonder, love, and praise. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, for this message today. On behalf of our Landmark Temple people, the members of our Landmark, our family, we appreciate your message on what is a Christian. For those of you listening on our broadcast, I urge you to write today and make inquiry about how to become a member of our 20th Century Record Club entitled Great Sermons of the 20th Century. This message you have heard today will be one of the first set of albums by great men of God. I hope that you will write today our mailing address, the Landmark Hour, Post Office Box 66, Cincinnati, Ohio, 45215.